You are on Line of Sight, a War Machine and Hordes podcast for new and experienced players, sponsored by Broken Egg Games. Welcome to episode number six of Line of Sight. Here we are yet again, a month and a half straight worth of podcasts. Uh, my name is, of course, Chandler, and I'm here with Jaden. How's it going, man? It's going very Romany. Very Romany, huh? Oh, yeah. I, so much ramen and a lot of vegetables. It was really good. At least you're making horrible eating noises into the microphone. Not this time. Not this time. <laughs> And, of course, uh, Brett is back on with us again for another week. How's it going? Um, I'm six games into Minions, and I finally stopped getting my caster killed. Oh, well done. Nice. <laughs> I'm sure it'll start again. Any but... minute now. Yep. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I was looking at some Minions not that long ago. I, I had a moment where I realized I was sad that Rask doesn't have an offensive spell, just because I wanted Magic Ability 10 offensive spells out of him. <laughs> and I was like, oh, it's not an option. Max. Only nine. Come on. No, you veteran leader him. No, no. Yeah, but he's only six base. Is he only six? What a terrible yeah. work. What a terrible <laughs> warlock. That's okay. He's getting a soul slave. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he's rat seven. That's what it is. Yeah. With that, just his rat, with just like the best gun ever made. Baby. Yeah. Basically. His disgusting gun. Yeah. So. Man. If Targ could ancillary attack Rask. Whew. If Targ could work for other factions. Right. He probably still wouldn't have ancillary attack, but yeah. I love that he can work for other factions, but he has to be attached to a minion warlock. Like, yeah, it's like in multicaster games for all those you all play. Yeah. yeah. Although we're getting the new rules for those soonish, I believe. The last time I did that, it was at Lock and Load 2016 against you, actually, Chandler, and I had Rask mm-hmm. with, like, with you trolls, know, and we were like, it was oh, look at all of the things that don't work at all together. Yeah, we, we discovered how many interactions didn't work based on the old Unbound rules, but I, I want to say it's either the first or, like, the second no-quarter prime that they're supposed to be putting the new rules out for, like, big games, um, yep. and they're saying they streamlined it a little bit, so hopefully it works slightly better. Anyway, uh, so... First off, news. What's been going on? Things quieted down a little. Yeah, this week was really quiet. Like, North can see how he finished, and that was basically it. Yep. And it kind of went out with a whimper. Yep. How many changes in the last week? Yeah, no. it was pretty quiet. They kind of, I think, got it to a spot they really liked. and So now we're going to see what, what in-house tweaks they do and see what they end up with with Mulg. And, yeah. Uh, see if, uh, I mean, we could blame... We can blame the quietness on the fact that Pagani's in Europe right now. This is true. Yeah, that's true. Um, but yeah, with the CID finishing up, that means it's time for another CID. Um, they've implied that we're going to be seeing the CID for the 12 Factions of Christmas stuff, um, which will likely start feeding in the new theme forces and whatnot. So. Ooh, those are going to be simultaneous? I don't know, but I would expect them to to be involved to some degree, especially ones where it's relevant. That's fair. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to see the Protector at one pretty quickly, because it's a Paladin model. Yeah. And uh, having the theme for him kicking around would be 
sort of nice, especially in regards to testing the model. Like a lot easier. Yeah. I'm how trying many, to think yeah, what the... How many of the full factions don't have themes? Um, Score. The... Oh, where the, where the model doesn't have a yeah. theme? Oh. Um, I'm not sure. I'd have to... The fire jacks? I'd have to look at the exact models that were the the Christmas models, because I don't remember exactly. Um, they all kind of got mixed in and everything. I think, I want to say, because Crix has the, like, spellcastery thing, right? I think. She is in Texas theme. Is she in Texas? See, it's all mixed up. I, I don't well, remember. She's definitely in Black Fleet, but she might be in Ghost Fleet, too. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. Ghost Fleet needs more tools. <laughs> hey, every solo they take that's not the Hellslinger Phantom, I'm okay with. Fair <laughs> enough. Yeah. What would the uh, little wold thing have to do to, to uh, cajole you back into circle testing, Brett? Speed 6, jump, and POW 13 base. Okay, so it's you want it to be a totem hunter. <laughs> no, I want it to be much better than a totem hunter. <laughs> totem I don't even know if that would... I don't, I don't think that would be good enough to get me to come back. I'm having so much fun with Grim Oh, that's true. Well, I don't know. I would let, I would enjoy killing a lot of people with Bradigus in like a 16-inch start range again. Oh, that's true. That's fair. Okay, I could see that. Yeah. I hadn't thought about Bradigus. Plus all the all that sweet stone shaper tech. More <laughs> damage for wolves. Yeah. You know, it'd be so funny as if it was a world where that came out, but the Wolderath still had spell ward. Gosh. <laughs> be like, curious. I hate everything. Luckily, they well, fixed that. If it was in rage, like literally in rage, but for wolves, that's a star action. It's not a spell. So right, but still, I'm uh, assuming this ability is going underneath the Stonekeeper's magic ability. Interesting rules interaction. Um, so the Arcanist mechanic has a star action repair. Mm-hmm. Everyone else's repair is mundane, but the Arcanist mechanics can be ruined or arcane vortex because it's a star action under his magic ability. That's really <laughs> Is it really? Yes, I, you can cancel it. <laughs> so something I've been doing lately is um, pushing... Uh, spell, like anti-spell tech into Arcanists to stop them from being able to concentrate power things. It didn't occur to me, and to put focus out, didn't occur to me they can't repair either. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's oh, awesome. That's awkward. They are Arcanist mechanics. <laughs> Doing it magically. That's that's pretty fascinating. The more you know. Okay. Yep. Uh, any other news? Uh, we wrote down about this Formula P3 video. What's up with that? Yeah, so uh, they've been doing the, uh, they did the first season, which was Dallas doing a whole bunch of painting techniques, mm-hmm. and uh, the second season is Brendan Roy doing all kinds of, like, very basic, but sometimes really overlooked stuff. Like, for example, he's got one on brush control techniques, mm-hmm. He's which I watched and I was like, oh, there's some really good stuff on that. Um, there's another one on, like, taking care of your paintbrushes, which I think everybody should watch because some people's paintbrush habits... Uh, make me really really unhappy this sometimes guy. yeah uh yeah not to name names or anything Chandler. um but yeah and then i think my paintbrush techniques yeah well yeah anyway and the next week is like um they're gonna do like how to, the best way to pin things with all kinds of little tips and tricks in there so it's just like some really good basic stuff to go and refresh yourself on because i don't know about you guys but i learned this stuff from like reading something with no pictures and then just trying it until I got it to work. That's that's more or less what I've been doing for the past few years. So. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. I'll have to check those out. I saw the brush care one, um, and I haven't 
seen much beyond that, so I'll definitely have to go check those out. Because that sounds like a pretty good time. I like that they've been doing that. I've been really enjoying Games Workshop's ones, the Warhammer TV ones with uh, Duncan. Mm-hmm. Um, he just does really, really good stuff, and, and so more stuff like that, uh, you know, of, of these big companies doing it uh, is, is pretty cool. Yeah. It's pretty nice. Uh, what do we have going on with Broken Egg? Uh, pretty much radio silence, except for the pre-orders are for sure shipping this week. Uh, for all the Grimkin stuff and whatever, that's definitely going out this week. Very nice. So, yeah, uh, I'm assuming, I know they've got a couple of cool little widgets in the works that we'll probably get to talk about in the future, but I don't have final details on those yet, so I'm not going to go into them. We're kind of through that, like, new faction just dropped phase, or kind of between. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, we'll just have to wait for the next CID to come up. All the fun fun stuff happens. I guess we have to actually figure out how the rules work now, you know, with this new steamroller and (laughs) it's all switching back. Yeah, I've been like, I've got three dials on the table most of the time when I play now, and there's just like one for each of our our, uh, scenario scores and then one keeping track of the turns because that matters now. The only reason I've been able to keep track of turns during games is because I take pictures every round. That's literally yeah, yeah. It. Like I, uh, I, I always, yeah, we always forget until like really late. We're like, wait, is this round seven? Like we've been playing. We're like both on nothing on our clocks. We've been going back and forth forever, and we're like, uh. although I'm always surprised because we're always like, man, it's got to be like round seven by now, and it's like top of five. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Like, I had a game like that last weekend where it was like I was playing Old Witch with a bunch of recursion into a Cater Old Witch with Pirates, which was really cool. And it was like we were down to like five minutes each on our clock and we were like, what round is it? Like, yeah, would you have just won if you'd stayed back instead of coming in? I get that particularly bad with the Vindictus list because it engages so quickly. Like the yeah. game's always the game always feels like it's one turn like ahead of where it actually is. Because like I remember one of the first games I played with it when I played against the Pirate. Uh, mess and they're super fast too and it was literally like top of two looked like bottom of four like <laughs> it was such a like mess already and it's like uh what round yeah, I, played on? I played against vindictus and on the bottom of one my soccer vault aimed yeah right, exactly. <laughs> yeah yeah you gotta avoid that you gotta measure you go what's your threat because mine's probably further and i'm gonna stand just outside of it so, <laughs> yeah. um so, okay, so here's my Steamroller 2017 mnemonics. Okay. Um, so I was reminded because of the scorekeeping thing. So if you're not playing in tournaments and you don't care about um, tiebreakers, like for scenario points, instead of keeping track of how many points everyone scores, just use one um, mm-hmm. six-sided die and keep track of the like who is ahead. Who's ahead. Uh, so, mm-hmm. like, so, you know, the first person scores, I get one. If the next person stops them from scoring and scores three, you move the die over to the, their side of the table and put it on two. It's a lot easier to keep track of. It's really, really, it's the difference that matters, right? Because that's who wins mm-hmm. and yeah. how you trigger the mercy rule. And it's a lot quicker and faster. And if you can put it by the clock, it's out of the way and it's easy to remember and keep track of. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a, a lot of my games, especially when it started getting more confusing in the late game, we started doing that. We switch over to, to doing that instead of actually keeping track yeah because yeah it, it saves you a lot of processing because you don't actually have to keep track of your absolute value just the difference yeah yeah that's true um and then the other mnemonic is uh to remember which zones are which and i'm so sad they didn't print this in the actual book 
right. So rectangular zones are square and logical, so they're controlled by robots and machines. And Warbies. Um, round zones are squishies, like the humans that control them, or the, the living things that control them, warrior models. And the small circles are controlled by small warrior units, solos. <laughs> yeah, that's actually exactly how I've been remembering it, just I haven't, like, vocalized that. Like, yep. that's, that's how my brain took it, was like, oh, okay, squares, that's like robots circles that's more round and people-y and yeah that's like that's like exactly how i've been doing it mentally just not really solidifying what that meant in my head <laughs> yep so we'll get to this in a, in a minute because it's part of our topic for the day but like slight tangent uh has the the absence of scoring capabilities for certain kinds of models on different scenarios uh changed the way you guys build lists at all because i played quite a bit on like outlast last weekend where one of my opponents had like literally no warjacks except for like one, and so it was like, oh look, or, or sorry, no units except for like one, and it was like, oh look, you can't score on this scenario ever. It hasn't changed how I've built exactly. Um, it just made what I already have to build like slightly harder. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's a creator's might problem because it has no combat unit whatsoever in it. Um. And that it's just creator's might is the better way to build a lot of the time. Um, so the other thing though is I, I do feel like just being able to kind of contest and like I've found as soon as one side's, like, as soon as both sides score a point or two, it's the scenario becomes a lot less live <laughs> a lot of the time. Um, so I, I get a lot more on just like, okay, I just need to contest and hold on for a little bit and. And whatnot. But that's that's just the nature of how I have to build. I, I think some factions will will handle that differently than others. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Cool. Yeah. For example, um, just the lists I've been building happen to have like three of everything: <laughs> three units, three solos, three uh, Morbies. Yeah. I don't think I don't think my thinking about list building has changed yet, but it might in the future. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's it's just been interesting because there's been like. Like, again, I played out last against a pile of heavies, and it was like, oh, look, if I just score a point and then hold on till the end of the game, I win because you can't score. So, okay. Yeah. yeah. Or, yeah, or they have to get their caster forward and just kill it. Yeah, out. yeah, exactly. It was interesting. The real trick um, is to get two of Roven and Co.'s boys killed and then just run him around. <laughs> yeah, I've been noticing that I've been really wanting to keep, the, like, the last two guys of a unit alive a lot more. Yeah, so there's mm-hmm. a, lot, a lot more running them away. Like one or yep. two man remainders of units are so good for scoring zones now. Yeah. Well, and even just like I'm, I'm thinking like min units of things are are going to be better. Anyway, we'll talk about this later. But let's move on to our rule of the week. Yeah. Sweet. You know this one. I do. Guess what? Jaden's uh, still excited about Grimkin. <laughs> I'm still super excited about Grimkin. <laughs> um, yeah, so this week we're going to real quick go over how Arcana work, because that's something that a lot of people maybe don't have a solid handle on yet, including Grimkin players, because it's pretty new. Um, it, we see a lot of posts of people going like, I did this, and it's like, that's not how that works at all. Yeah, or, or people just going like, where are the rules for Arcana? Because they're yeah. they're not in War Room. My favorite um, is when somebody's like, my opponent triggered two arcana on my turn, and it was just over. And it was like, hmm, was it? <laughs> Man, it sucks to lose the, uh, an order every single turn. <laughs> yeah, that too. Uh, they just so, cancel my spells whenever they want. And it's like, it's, this isn't, this isn't good. Yeah. 
So uh, Arcana are a replacement for the feat effect on the Grimkin Warlocks, except for Old Witch. Um, and you get to choose two of them at the beginning of the game, after you've chosen lists, but before you have chosen sides. Um, and you get to choose two of them in addition to your trump card, which is the one that you kind of have to take with your Warlock. And you can trigger them, one of them per turn. That's it. And then once you've triggered it, it's gone forever. You don't get it back. Note the uh, per turn, not the per round. Yes, that's an important one. So um, there's a lot of ones that trigger off of your opponent killing your models. So, like, theoretically, you could trigger one on your opponent's turn and then make your opponent free strike something super important, kill it, and then trigger another one on your turn and have two active at the same time. It's depending on the ones you have active. I always said this in CIDs. Sometimes it feels like Grim can all have parry because... <laughs> you don't want to activate them on your turn. Um, it can be really bad. Like, some of them can get particularly backbreaking if they're allowed to stack that way. Yeah. yeah, so there's, like, you know, the Reckoning, which gives you plus two, plus two against a model, and then there's the other one that gives you plus one to hit and damage, just period. And, like, having both of those go active at the same time is nuts. So, yeah, yeah I mean, they're pretty simple. Like, there's, there's not that many rules... In, in terms of how they work, but it's just important to know that, number one, your opponent only gets to use each one once. Number two, they only get to trigger them once per turn. You can't trigger more than one in the same turn. Yeah. Um, pay extra special attention to the difference between control and command. Um, mm, yes. Because a lot of them are keyed off command, which varies wildly between defiers. <laughs> yes. The, the heretic is ten and the child is five. Because King of, of the Nothing child. is one. Oh, yeah, King of Nothing is one. <laughs> yeah, King, like, King the of Nothing is the one that's, like, screwed. Yeah, the stealth one is useless with him. So, yeah. Uh, and, yeah, just if uh, if you and your opponent aren't sure, read the card very carefully, see what it triggers off of. Um, and then if you're playing Grimkin, don't, don't play two of them at a time uh, on the same turn. And if you're playing against Grimkin, just be like, no, that's not how that works. And either check out the cards.privateerpress.com uh, database, and if you look at any one of the warlocks, it's on their, the back of their spell card where the feet would be, uh, or you can refer them to our podcast, and they can listen to the first 20 minutes while you go get a drink or whatever, and then come <laughs> back and finish the game. That's the perfect plan. <laughs> yes. Um, do we have any other tips for Arcana? Uh, well, I think a big one is uh, be careful with high pow shots, because they might get shield guard into a crabbit and kill a crabbit. Yep. And, well, yeah. So I, I've heard a lot of people complaining about the the strength of Grimkin. Grimkin might be one of the most punishing factions to play against if you don't know how they work. Um, but the Arcana are something that are very much designed to be a little bit of a mind game. Um, at the end of the day, the three Arcana and the ability to choose them and whatnot is more powerful than feats typically are. But you get the option to to not trigger them essentially or trigger them when you kind of want to try to get them to um for yep. example if you're concerned about the heretics trump card if you're like i i don't want him to have that next turn you're like but i could lay down a bunch of gunfire and force him to pop stealth for the turn he can no longer activate his trump card that turn things like that you know that's there's a lot of different examples of, of that kind of a thing go he wants try to think about what your opponent wants to activate and try to make him activate something else instead um, there's a lot of mind games about the Arcana mechanic. It's a really fascinating mechanic, and it's very drastically different from how you play War Machine against any other faction. Yep. 
and they won't ever be the same. Like, uh, depending on the warlock that you're playing against, or and the the scenario and the terrain and what you are playing, you probably won't ever see the same combination of three arcana, like, very often, at all. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yep. Yep. They're super duper fun to play with, though. Holy crap, they're so much fun. <laughs> Yeah, but for the sake of actually operating the rule, it's it's not a very complex rule, but yeah, it's it's one a lot of people don't know where it's written and how it works. So just make sure you do it correctly. Hold yourself to it, because a lot of people don't know what the heck the faction does, and if you're playing them, you probably know better than the person you're playing against. So yep. for now. Yep. Once we get all, right. all the new shiny nonsense, it'll, it'll calm down. People figure yeah. it out. Yeah. Yeah, so that kind of pushes us on to our actual topic for the week. Uh, we wanted to talk a little bit about how to practice. How do you actually practice playing games? A lot of people talk about wanting to be able to get out and do practice games for an event and whatnot, but what does that, like, actually mean? <laughs> um, at, at the very, very core, it's play games with your lists. <laughs> yep. No. But there, there are ways to have effective practice beyond right. that. Yeah. yeah. Just playing games doesn't necessarily give you the information you need. Yeah. So let me let me briefly talk about the philosophy of practicing competitively. So this is something from like um, esports that I've learned. Is the best way to do it is to have a sort of team mentality where it's you get together with your locals, and it's not you versus your opponent. It's you with your opponent trying to answer a specific question. Sort of like CID testing, actually. Um, where you go, okay, I think X can solve this problem I'm having. Or I think X, or I think Y is okay uh, as long as it's not this scenario. And so you test that question. And the important part is the testing. Um, you want to try and talk it out with your opponent because... Um, it, the more you talk about it, the more you'll understand both his, your opponent's army and your own, because uh, you'll be getting their insight, and you'll be critically thinking about how your opponent's army works, which is a really good way to learn. Um, and it also means you'll be getting advice and uh, like an honest opinion from them. Yeah, that's that's a great point. That uh, it's more of, of a team effort. It's you and your opponent together. Um, and the other thing is that. If you're testing or if you're practicing, um, there, I have two sort of practice modes. Uh, one of them I call the the learning, or I don't, I don't really call it this, but if I had to think about it, I'd call it like the the introduction or learning stage of the matchup or the list or the whatever it is. Where if you screw it up, and that was the whole point of playing the game, uh, you and your opponent agree to let you actually play it correctly because you need the experience of this is how this works. And then after you've done that a few times. Um, you, I switch over into the no mercy for me, no take backs for me uh, mindset, where if I screw something up, like, and it's this thing that I'm trying to practice, I'm going to remember it better because I messed it up and I will know what it feels like to have gotten it wrong than I would if I just get to endlessly take it back and then get to an event and be like, ah, da, 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 da. Oh, oh, snap, I forgot to do that. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, but it's an event and I can't take it back this time. Uh, so similar to that, I recommend, I highly recommend um, rolling out assassinations. So you want to practice assassination runs um, because they'll come up in tournaments and they're a good way to, uh, you know, win if your opponent gives you the opportunity. And you also want to get a good feeling for how likely or how easy to pull off they are. Um, however, uh, you 
also want to experience the late game because it's kind of rare to get to the late game um, in War Machine unless you force yourself to. And mm-hmm. you don't want your first experience with the late game to be, you know, in the finals of a tournament. Um, yep. So, the, so what you should do, or what I recommend doing in practice games, is um, if you if you see an assassination, you t- you tell your opponent about it, and um, if he says if he says, oh yeah, that that's that's something reasonable, and then you go, okay, so then you go, I would have to move this, this, and this, and you don't actually touch any of your models. You just roll the attacks, and you see. If it passes or fails, and then you talk about the probability of that of that happening, and usually you can do a quick um, like a quick evaluation of how like the percentage of the assassination going off. Um, uh, I usually do rough math using uh, a hit chance calculator. I know Jaden's a big fan of uh, odds uh, machine. Yes, odds machine. Thank you. I've never used it, but I hear it's very very good. It's really good if you've got, like, I think it's seven or less attacks going into something. Mm-hmm. After that, it takes about ten minutes to calculate each additional one. <laughs> so, oh. yeah. Oh, math. We need more supercomputers. Yep. Um, and, and, yeah, the advantage there is that you get the experience of both the assassination and the late game, uh, like the attrition play, um, which basically means you're getting twice the amount of practice from a single game, which is a big win when games take as long as they do in War Machine. Yep, especially with SR2017 making things go a lot longer than they previously did. Yeah, um, sure. One other thing real quick before we get into our areas is I think that uh, you should always practice with a clock if if you're practicing for an event. Uh, find out what the time uh, limitations that they're using are. They'll usually be a death clock. Uh, and then get used to playing with that because... There's a vast world of difference between playing with 55 minutes left and five minutes left. Um, even if you've only got like six models left with five minutes left, your brain will start to panic if you haven't practiced with that much time left. Mm-hmm. And uh, similar to like uh, training with weights on, um, I if you are going to be practicing hardcore for a tournament. Uh, you should either do time turns uh, because time turns is a really good way to force yourself to use it to evenly spread your time on the death clock, even if you aren't playing and playing a time turn event, um, or to play with a hardcore time limit. So the next step down, so like 42 minutes for a 75 point game, um, because you don't really care if you clock out, but hopefully the time pressure um, will make you play to that hardcore time clock. And then when you go to the real event and it's 60 minutes, you're like, oh, I've got an extra 20 minutes to do whatever I want, and it feels really easy. Yep. So uh, we've got some some big sort of general areas to look at for our our practice, and uh, it all starts with the list building aspect of it, which we've talked about a little bit before. Um, but in general, your list building uh, is going to be for two lists, and you're going to try and cover the other both list weaknesses as much as possible. Uh, with each other, and you're also going to want them to do different enough things that one one strategy won't counter them both completely. Um, and so this is where we're going to depart a little bit from maybe what we would call well, we've are, we're, we're talking about practicing for an event. So we've we've departed from the realm of just casually playing a game of War Machine because this is practicing. And so uh, in the list building stage, especially for a competitive event, there. Uh, there's no reason to keep a model in your list if it doesn't fit what the goal of that model is. Um, for example, at LVO this last year, 
I was playing Brenos in my Wormwood list, and I really, really like Brenos. Uh, but Chandler and Brett and a couple of other people, since I made day two, were like, all right, dude, you got to drop that thing and put in a pure blood. You're playing three wold weirds and you need to have Wraithbane. And they, of course they were right. And so I did. And I was really glad I did. That came up quite a bit the next day. I struggle with this a lot. <laughs> um, I get pet models really, really badly. Uh, so that's always kind of something I'm having to check myself on. Um, I actually get the worst of it with casters. <laughs> um, where you, it, it, this goes all the way up the list. You have to be able to decide, like, is this even the right caster for that job? Um, this is something that comes up in a, a lot with discussions, uh, about casters being good or not, is there are a lot of instances where some casters just do some, the same thing, but better. Um, you need to be able to check your entire list over for that kind of stuff. And that's gonna start appearing a lot more in, like, as you test it. But there are things you can kind of vet even just from paper, to a degree. So hilariously, I have the opposite problem. I have a problem. I have difficulty putting in a, li- in a model that's just, you know, universally good if it doesn't fit, like, you know, the gunline theme or the run-in melee theme. It's <laughs> um, so like putting in tech pieces is like pulling teeth for me. <laughs> oh, no. See, I, the pieces I put in aren't universally good. That's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, but I want Nisia in there. She's so cool. Yep. And so an aspect of list building as it applies to practice is you should be thinking about what matchups are actually worth practicing. Um, So, (laughs) (laughs) but playing a list that tops out at power 11 has no damage buffs into a Kator Jack spam is not going to get, not going to be quality practice for anyone Um, in the same way building a super specific hard counter for whatever list your opponent um, is bringing is generally not a good idea unless that, and unless that list is just like taking over the meta, like a ghost fleet or a uh, king three. Um, or if you just have a very small meta and you're like, this list can fight everyone else I know. And then I need this one for that guy. And you're like done. Yeah. Yep. Yes. Yeah. And so, so yeah, so this is... make... go ahead. So yeah, the trick, I mean, this is, the most difficult thing in War Machine, so don't... Like, I still struggle with predicting meta. Um, so trying to understand which lists are common, which lists you shouldn't bother practicing against, uh, although, I, you know, with unlimited time, you'd practice against everything. Um, yep. But, and which ones are is most worth your time to practice. Yep. So, some interesting uh, ideas for this... Uh, determining what your meta is going to be like. Uh, If it's just your local group, you probably know it pretty well and you don't need advice because uh, you're, you know, these are your, your buddies, your, your normal game night opponents, and they'll be playing what they play. Um, If you're going out of town for an event and to a place that you don't know very well, a lot of time what I do is I find their Facebook page and then I join it and then I figure out who the TO is and I pester him and pester him and pester him with questions about like, who's in his meta, what the breakdown is like, um, who, who his best players are, those kind of things. And uh, maybe they won't tell you all the stuff, and that's fine, but even getting sort of a, a general picture of what you're going into is um, is a good thing to do. And for a super big event, uh, I mean, just be prepared for everything, but talk with other players that are going and just like find out what they're bringing and what they're scared of being there and you can start to build a, a bit of a meta picture of the event. For example, at Lock and Load Masters, 
uh, I was scared to death of Kador if I was going to play Circle, but I hadn't realized that Ghost Fleet was just going to make Kador basically non-existent outside of like three or four people per heat. Yeah, and it's it's hard to figure those things on the fly, especially if it's something new like that. Um, honestly, the best way is just to if if you want to go to a lot of conventions go to conventions and befriend people and just talk to them about what they think they'll see in the meta. Um, it turns out War Machine players love to talk about War Machine. What? Yeah, it's true. <laughs> so, so yeah. Uh, and, and and like Chandler said, especially in, in your local meta, if there's just that one guy that you need your list to beat, I mean, go for it. It's a tournament. Alright, and I think the last thing on list building is when you get close to the event, so within like I mean, ideally within like a month or two, you want to lock your list um, and, because you want to start doing honest testing. You don't want to go, um, well, this matchup's really good for me as long as I have a totem hunter. And then you end up not bringing the totem hunter and you make the wrong list choice. Um, yep. So like, I, when, when it gets close to event, I start printing out my, my steamroller sheet as if I was going to the event and just handing that to my opponents and going through the list, the, like, list chicken process too. Um, just to make sure that I can't change anything the night of, because that is the worst thing you can do, is to change a model in your tournament list as you're driving to the event and without any practice games. Yeah, yeah. Uh, man, last year's lock and load. Anyway, um, so, after you've got list building, the first thing you're going to do, do in any game is deploy. Um, well, I mean, you're going to roll for first and whatever, and choose You're going to choose your arcana. And choose your arcana, because you're playing Grimkin <laughs> like every other person should be playing. Um, but uh, choosing your side and deploying is, after list building, definitely the most important part of the game, uh, I think. There's there's a lot more to it than than is generally recognized. Um, and if you'd like to read so, a little something about this topic, uh, I have written something for Druid Size like a year ago at this point, that goes over like my philosophy for choosing side based on terrain and then how to use it. Um, and it's going to be more relevant as SR 2017 comes up and I'll make sure Chandler links that in the show notes. So you guys can go look at that if you want to. Um, but, uh, what do you guys think about like deployment terrain, all that stuff? What, what are some of your guys' tricks? So on the very, just, this is something I'm very conscious of and I'm sure a lot of people are, but, um, on the very, <laughs> Make sure you can deploy all your models without them running into each other. <laughs> um, I know that sounds really basic, but I have played lists that, just by their design, are very difficult to deploy effectively. Probably the one that I remember the most is, of course, my old Mark II Morvana list. Um, oh, which gosh. Ran, yeah, it ran at the time <laughs> uh, 80 Druids, 80 Blood Trackers, and 80 Tharn Ravagers. And the problem is, is the nature of one matchup to another in that list, all three of those units had to be able to activate first. Um, but while also being central. So what I did, knowing that this was a mess of a list, is, uh, I sat on my floor and deployed it. <laughs> um, I spent hours doing this, just making sure I could do it efficiently. It's also a clock thing to a degree, mm-hmm. being able to do it quickly. Um, and effectively, while also not being so locked into it that you can't adjust based off of your opponent's deployment. I think, again, what you brought up about SR 2017, I think SR 2017 makes you think about that deployment even more uh, yep. than we used to have to, exactly where your pieces are and where they're going to need to be able to go. Um, 
So that was my big thing. And and then I, I had a transition where I got used to an army that was mostly AD. I transitioned over to Protectorate. And suddenly I have a whole bunch of jacks interspersed with full-size combat units in my regular deployment line. And I had to figure it out again. Um, I had to go back and work out how do I deploy this stuff to be able to move my things appropriately. So like just, just being able to just put your models down, that's like, no, that's the, the first step as far, as far as I'm concerned is. I actually yeah. want to reinforce that. I think every list deserves some time, uh, deploying on your own, like playing against the goldfish if you were playing magic, um, where you just <laughs> you set up some terrain, you set up a scenario, you run your first two turns ish, um, and you just get that muscle memory so you can deploy faster so you can deploy more accurately accurately you can discover where problems are because these are all things you can find out in solo mode and they are all things that will cost you a game if you screw them up um in a practice or a tournament game Um, yeah also it'll also lead you to find some cool things like uh, hopefully you'll think about ways to run models in such a way that they'll avoid aoe's but still be able to charge through each other um you'll come up with like uh, mnemonics like, oh, so if I do like X, X's um, of infantry, this is a very flexible deployment style that allows me to intersperse my units and still have them work effectively through each other. Um, if you if you really want uh, good good advice on how to deploy and run your army, uh, talk to a Mark II Crix player. Uh, they are the experts. Or a Mark II Trolls player, one of the two. Mark, yes. Yeah. And uh, to add to that, um, like... The other thing that this will do for you is you're going to be able to deploy and then get your turn one out of the way extremely quickly on the clock. Like that list Chandler was talking about, the, the Morvana 2 list, is, was a nightmare to deploy. But I, I played against it for the first time after Chandler had already been playing it for six months, and he deployed it faster than I deployed my like gigantuan plus dudes troll list at that point. Like It took him less than a minute, and it was pretty impressive. Um, and so just shaving that time off your clock, especially in SR 2017, where games are designed to go long is, is going to win you games. Like if you save 30 seconds in that deployment zone or in that deployment stage, that might be really important later. And even more so on turn one. Um, one of the things that I've noticed is that when I really have the first turn for a list down and I've been playing it quite a bit, my opponents will just tell me what I'm doing and I don't even have to say anything. Uh, like I was playing Tanith a lot at, in uh, last fall, and every game would start off the same. I'd put Scything Touch on my uh, Stalker, I'd put Admonition on my Pure Blood, and Tanith would charge something. And it got to the point where my opponents were just like, yeah, yeah, Scything Touch, Admonition, charge, whatever, keep playing. And uh, and at that point, I was like, okay, I have this down. It's all about the old days, man. Stone form Animus, move forward. Stone form Animus, move forward. Stone form Animus. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody so. remembers that old mantra. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. So, so that's a little bit about deploying. Do you have anything else on specifically deploying? Uh, yeah, I want to it's talk a about a little bit about obviously, so. about terrain. I'd like to touch on it at least when when it comes to deploying. Okay. Um, SR twenty seventeen. Uh, most of the ways that you're going to do see terrain laid out is going to have a big line of sight blocking piece of terrain somewhere in the middle of the table, and there's also going to be some rough terrain guaranteed uh, on one of the approaches to at least one of the the scenario elements. And it's really important to look at those ahead of the game and just decide, um, like, map out in your head kind of where your models would have to go to get through those effectively. And this is, you know, you're going to have to practice this. Uh, and also where your opponent's models would go, just, like, based off of do they have Pathfinder? 
uh, do my things have Pathfinder? Um, are there perhaps like burning earth things that would be a problem? Like I don't want to run into them. Um, if I've got guns, where do they need to go so they can, they can see most of the table around that giant piece of terrain in the center? Um, because the, the terrain at the beginning of the game and the choice of side or going first is probably the most important decision that you're going to make once you're on the table. And, and you need to know, like, a lot of people sort of get that idea, but I think it's it's really, really important, like, to sit down at the beginning of the game, because you're not on the clock yet, and just spend 30 seconds just going, where is the best spot for my things? Where should they go? Where do I not want my opponent to go? And then deploy accordingly, because it's going to be different every table, but it's super-duper important. Super-duper. And, and while you can't practice the exact situations, you can practice the uh, ability to, to determine which ones are important, um, and you can get those habits and those uh, like thought processes down. So and and yeah, I've got that article. I will have Chandler link it, and I'm going to do a revised one for SR 2017 sometime soon here. Once once we've played more than ten games of 2017. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the next thing uh, we wanted to talk a little bit about is target prioritization. Now, this is something to think about knowing the weaknesses of the list that you have. What pieces are going to be a problem, and do you have the ability to deal with them? <laughs> um, often that can be the case of very specific solos. Uh, sometimes it's something terrible, like a heavy that you somehow have to deal with from a distance. But uh, what kind of stuff do you guys think about with that kind of a thing? Uh, well, I always kind of think like at the beginning of the game, uh, and this is probably a, a holdover from Circle where this was a big problem, uh, but it was always kind of like, where are their heavy armor pieces and what are my ways to deal with them? And that sort of just made it so that at the beginning of the game, I, I kind of committed to myself that I wasn't going to throw away my only answers to those ahead of time, if that makes sense. Like, sometimes it'll be super, super tempting to throw your heavy at a light war beast to get that extra scenario point or whatever. But if that heavy war beast that you just threw away is the only answer you had to, like, ruin sitting over there or Scourge of Heresy or whatever, um, it's really not worth it because you don't have... At that point, you don't have a way to, to deal with that after the fact. The amount of times I've had Geterix just not be involved in a whole game because Butcher was there. <laughs> You're like, yeah, yeah, the exactly. only thing I have that can kill him, so he's just got to chill until Butcher comes forward. I often find myself focusing on um, denial pieces. So, like, this, uh, you know, this Jack is immune to spells. Well, I rely on spells to control Jacks, so I have to make sure that I play a lot more honestly against that Jack. Yep. And uh, some other things like uh, shield wall units, for example, or other units that can get to really, really high armor and just sort of sit in a zone. Um, I like to, if I don't really have a way to deal with that, a lot of the time what I will do is I will give them a target opportunity. Um, so this is like meta, meta, mind, whatever games. But like, so say you don't really have a good way to deal with a unit of Iron Fang Bikeman and shield wall under mini feet. Um but you can give them a piece that maybe you don't care about quite so much that will tempt them to charge it. Uh, that is sort of the reverse of target priority. It gives your opponent an opportunity to make a target priority mistake and go after your pieces. So it's kind of important as well to think about what your opponent's target priorities are going to be and scalpel out those pieces if you can. Um, because just like you're going, I have to have this thing to kill that thing, they're going, I have to have this thing to deal with that thing. 
Um, Orin Midwinter is a good example of this. Like, if you if you're a spell based list, you have to kill Orin before you can do anything. Um, or other things like like the book. If it gets too close to you, you can't cast spells. By the way, this really highlights um, something that's really important to keep in mind when you're practicing is that um, the the reason we practice by playing games and not just by writing lists is that um, 99% of matchups are not decided um, by the lists. They are decided by how it plays out on the table. Yep. Yeah. The game's getting a lot better in that respect towards going. Even a lot of the stuff people consider very bad matchups, aside from some some standouts, are are closer than you'd think. And um, player skill is is a really big deal, and knowing how your list works is really important. <laughs> so the next thing we had written down here is mitigating your opponent's stuff with placement. Um, this, <laughs> placement, and people have said this in the past, just effective placement of your pieces is probably one of the most difficult aspects of the game knowing exactly how each piece needs to like sit to affect the game properly or or not die or things like that. Um, this might be one of the biggest things you'll get out of practicing repeatedly is just that positioning and knowing how you need to position against pieces that, that uh, are across the table from you. And it's just... This is a hard one, I think, to talk about sometimes because at the end of the day, this is one of those little things that you get out of just playing a lot of games. <laughs> yep. Uh, there are a couple of, of models out there that have like really easy to measure effects on the game that, uh, are, are really good things to practice placement with. Uh, for example, most of the Horde's factions can take wrong eye and snapjaw and getting wrong eye in a safe place to cast Starcrossed, but still have him actually matter is one of those more obvious, like I've done this correctly things because you can be like, all right, wrong eye's not dying. Check that box. And then Starcross is screwing my, with my opponent's plans like nobody's business. All right, check that box. And when you can do those two things effectively, that's a really easy way to like see, am I getting this this sort of thing? Whereas others maybe aren't quite so so like cut and dry. This is working or this isn't working. Uh, not quite placement, but it's a very similar vein is when to cast spells and when to camp and what what must be done and which which is just being greedy. Um, it's very obvious with uh, wrong eye because there are a lot of situations. There are a lot of situations where submerge will keep um, keep it alive. There are also a lot of situations where casting submerge allows your opponent to kill it. Yep. Yeah. So, um, man. Yeah. This is a super difficult topic to just talk about. Um, if you're having problems with your placement, this is one of those spots where talking with your opponent as you go through your turn, as you're practicing. Is is really important, and I want to recommend this maybe for every game because you need to you need to do this on your own to get it really in in your brain. But if if you're going into an opponent and and you like you respect this player, they're a good player, and they um, if you ask them for help with your placement uh, over the first few turns of the game, um, and that's where that communication and that sort of teamwork aspect of practicing for the game really comes in because uh, maybe you can't see that, but they've got more experience than you do, and they can say this is a problem and I've seen this happen because I've played so many games or, or had the situation come up this many times. Um, so yeah, communicate with your opponent uh, if you want to get better at your placement and just agree to play a couple of games where it's just like, all right, we're going to talk each other through where optimal placement for our stuff is. Two brains are almost always going to get you a better answer than one. Yeah. That's uh, one thing that I 
have always kind of, I guess, prided myself on to some degree is uh, being able to effectively position to handle alpha strikes, especially with very low model count builds. Um, it's a really difficult thing to do. And what it, what that came from was months of playing the same dude playing Assyria with Halberdiers <laughs> over and over and over again and just getting destroyed because they go so far. And then every time having him arrange help me arrange my models for me go this is how this is how you would screen against that and just really subtle little positioning things whenever when i when i see people a lot of time talk about like something that should have been like a pretty good matchup or whatever and there's like i just got utterly steamrolled they just alpha struck me and blew me up and whatnot it's probably because your positioning wasn't good it's one of the most complicated and difficult skills in the game because it's it's i mean it kind of is the game in a lot of ways it's the reason that uh, tape measure and you know physical models based things on a table is so interesting in a lot of respects. It's not like a grid, you know, where everything has an, an exact spot to stand. Everything can be within millimeters of the correct spot, you know, to survive or do better and whatnot. And that's that's one of the biggest skills in the game. So it's it's a really hard one to to talk about necessarily without just saying play a lot and talk with your opponent about it and figure out, you know. All yeah. those little things. I, I would add one one small thing to that, and that is, um, if you want to be playing at a competitive level and you'd like to be practicing at a competitive level, you should pick your, yourself up a, a set of uh, accurate measurement widgets that have uh, the the basic distances blocked out, so you can use them, and also uh, a set of blast keys for the different base sizes. Yeah. Um, so that so that you can position your models so that they're not going to give blast damage to another model if they're directly hit with the different AOE sizes, um, and that's something that's like we're we're fortunate in Mark III that we don't have to eyeball that anymore, uh, because man, that was a pain in Mark II. Or so but, using your melee ranges and basing yeah, that exactly. off of yeah, weaponized trigonometry. Um, but yeah, so just get just get a set of blast keys and, and a set of widgets and. And use them. Like, don't just leave them in your box. Actually, take them out and force yourself to play with them against like AOE threes. Just put down your model and then check a three-inch AOE off of that, and put your mo- other model slightly off of that, and then do it again. I had a moment, Jane. You'll know what I'm talking about. I, we had a moment fairly recently where I think we kind of realized exactly how many widgets we rely on um, when we had to go through and check like what kind of every measuring thing we could possibly need. And it was like, holy crap, I need a lot of little measuring things. Like we, uh, we've yeah. all gotten so used to just using like a ton of uh, little measurement things and they're, and they're, they're so useful. Um, they help you with time. They help you with positioning. They help you with just all kinds of things. Um, tape measures quickly, quickly measuring over a model with a tape measure is very inaccurate. And, um, you know, you can get accurate with a tape measure, but it takes a lot more time. Um, so for the sake of, you know, positioning and learning to, to practice to position well, all those little things help out a lot. I think I bought yep. my first widget set in my first, like, eight months of playing, and I've just, like, forgotten what it's like to play without them. So. Yeah, same. Uh, so next thing we want to talk about is making plans. Um, you ask your significant other if they are busy, um, <laughs> and you do something that both of you want to enjoy. Makes sense. No, no, no. We're not talking about a date. We're talking about a oh, plan. Oh, yeah. sorry. I thought, um, I thought it was a dating podcast. So uh, you bring 60-plus infantry models, and you just run at them. <laughs> that is a plan. <laughs> it is a plan. Okay, flashback. 
Yep. <laughs> I've been building so, so yeah. lists, so I have I have images of sixty drudges in my head right now. Uh, so good. I to that to that I can only say take all of the cast gimps in the world to your face. But <laughs> uh, anyway, um, so yeah, making making a plan. Uh, there's a couple of different levels for this. And you'll make a, a lot of plans over the course of a game. But when you build your list, your list kind of has a plan to it, uh, usually. Uh, there's a sort of central thing that it does and you want it to do, and if it does it well, it will win. Um, or it should, anyways. Or, or it should, like barring dice or something horrible happening. Uh, there's a game plan, like when you look at the table. And this is maybe a little bit less, since the scenarios are a lot less live than they were in SR2016. But uh, the game plan that you come to the table with you're going to, like, I'm going to go for an assassination. I'm going to play for scenario. I'm going to try an out attrition. One of those things is going to be your game plan. And I think those two are a little bit easier to figure out than what your turn-by-turn plans are going to be. That's this is actually, and this is both endless building and on playing, but it's kind of something I see once in a while. Have a win condition? <laughs> <laughs> like... No, there, there are specific objectives to win, right? I had a problem with this for a really long time until I forced myself to just, like, work scenario super hard for a long time. Um, it's really easy to just, like, fall into, like, I'm just going to kill enemy models forever. And there's a point where you're like, but I have to fulfill one of the, the handful of win conditions. Like, am I doing that? And uh, you can you can start that in list creation to a degree, but it's something to practice, Um yeah, yeah. It's not necessarily a practicing, but also a playing thing. Is you should at the beginning and end of every turn ask yourself, um, "Am I ahead in this game? How would I go about winning if I am ahead? How how would I protect myself from losing if I am behind? Um, and like, what is the best? What is the most likely win condition um, for this situation? Uh, this will help you decide. Like, well. Uh, none of my options are good, so it's time to go for that very low odds assassination, stuff like that. Yep. So, so typically, uh, and I'm gonna go a little bit in reverse from the way we've got this written down because I think maybe it's written down in, in backwards order. Um, but typically, every turn is gonna have one of sort of three, uh, three things that you're gonna go for. One, one or two of these things. Um, there's gonna be an attrition play that you will make, a scenario push or a tempo push, and then assassination as a possible um, win condition. Um, so there's there's a couple of different ways that I, I usually go about uh, deciding which one of these I'm going to do. Um, and I'm, I'm going to start with assassination because I think this one is the easiest, maybe, to, to, to recognize. Um, and I, I start looking for an assassination run if I am massively down and I don't really have another good way to win at all anymore. Like, I've got six models left on my opponent's like 30 uh and i i need to win or i'm going to lose on attrition or a scenario the next turn so that's my first like i'm looking for an assassination run here uh the second one is if i can easily uh if my opponent's warcaster or warlock is within easy easy like to see ranges of either my heavy war beast or my elite unit or my my really good guns like if those things are in place, I'm going to start looking for an assassination run. Um, and the third one is, if I've got a list that's specifically designed to assassinate, like Kruger 2, Kane 2, Kane 3, Haley 2 maybe, um, any of these powerful placement messing with casters, or just lots of guns, 
Um, I'm going to look and see, can I win on assassination this turn? Got anything to add to that, Brett? Um, you should make sure that you have played lists that focus on each of those win conditions. Um, I know that I have a bad habit of only playing attrition lists, um, so I spent some time this year uh, building an assassination list and bringing it to events just so that I can learn you know, how assassinations work, how to avoid them, how to, you know, how to mitigate them, when to go for them, things like that. Yeah, yep. that's a little of what I did with a scenario list. I, I jumped into Kruger 2 and just was like, I'm going to win every game on scenario and until I got that in my head, that that's a win condition, that's a way you can win, you know. And, and now it actually sticks in my head because I spent some time doing that, um, even when it, like, was not the optimal thing to do. <laughs> uh, just making it so that you're able to think about that as a potential win condition is is pretty huge. So, um, and in when you're going for an assassination, um, you're going to want to be able to do some, some pretty basic dice math uh, to, to inform yourself as to whether it's a reasonable chance to succeed or whether or not it's not going to work at all. Um, so I'd like to address sort of a common misconception that's out there um and that is that rolling a seven a bunch of times in a row is average dice because it's not at all um your first seven is a coin flip your first seven is consecutively changes the odds as well yes so um go ahead um math 101 um if if you need a certain number to hit um the probability or sorry if you need a certain number to hit twice the probability of getting both of them is by multiplying their probabilities together. Um, yep. Which means, uh, you know, if your assassination relies on one seven, then it's a coin flip. It's a fifty. It's a fifty percent chance of actually um, go, succeeding. If it relies on two sevens, then it's a twenty-five percent chance, and that's obviously not a very good um, likelihood. And it just gets worse the more dice you you roll. And this also adds up for things like, um, you know. I need to hit 10 fives. Well, that's, I mean, you may have an 80% chance to hit, you know, one five, but hitting 10 fives, that's, you know, 0.8 to the 10th, which is in the, it's in the realm of like 20% again. So that's again, low, low odds. So you have to, you have to think about, so go brush up on some props, some basic probability math and um, play with hit chance calculator, play with odds machine and start seeing the actual probabilities of some of these things. Um, and yep. also, one of the most important things is the when to boost question. Um, <laughs> odds machine is really good for that because you can play with the. It'll tell you the best odds, right? Yeah. My my rule of thumb for for when to boost and when not to boost. Um, if I need, if it's an important roll and I need a six or higher, I'm boosting to hit. And and for damage rolls, these are a little bit less specific, like a less critical usually because they're sort of like. The hit roll is a binary one. You either hit or you don't. But the damage roll is a comparison, so you you do some damage or you do less damage. Um, I don't start boosting my damage rolls until it's dice off four. Yeah. So, um, and the the last thing about that is these rules of thumb hold until you get into a bad situation. So if if your assassination starts going awry, um, sometimes you have to go. All right, I have four attacks left. They need sevens, but he has three transfers left. So I have. Like the only the only situation in which I win this game is if I hit all four of those sevens. Um, it it doesn't matter that it's better odds to do more damage if I boost a hit because I can't win the game that way and I'll probably lose the next turn. So yeah. sometimes you, you have to go for spikes. Um, and yeah. that actually applies to that. 
Uh, that's why I like, uh, like Jaden said, to not boost damage until you're at dice minus four or worse, um, because it's approximately the same amount of damage if you're at like dice minus uh, four or three. Um, but it allows you to roll more dice and hopefully spike higher. Um, turns out the more dice you roll uh, because of the way damage works and that you don't heal if you roll a negative number, um, it actually, rolling more dice actually uh, makes you go higher over the damage. Yeah, curve. it, it, it kind of makes the math do things that aren't. A lot of people will consider an extra die to be approximately a plus three, but over, especially over multiple die rolls, it doesn't really play out that way. Um, it tends to be a little better than that. That's why Weapon Master is such a huge rule. Yep. Yeah, and it's it's also why like doing a bunch of like POW fourteen charges with infantry can kill a heavy as easily as like a POW eighteen heavy can with you know two dice. The more dice you roll, the better it is for you. Um, and uh, again, like. There's always ways to mitigate the dice a little bit. Like, if you have a way to turn your opponent's caster around, or if you have some way to reduce their defense, or if you can knock them down, which is obviously great, because then you don't have to roll to hit at all for melee attacks. Um, but, yeah. So, assassinations. Play with dice math, get used to that idea, and uh, and look for them if they're there. Yeah, and, I mean, at the end of the day, this is all about just trying to get in, you know, some kind of effective practice. Um, in the interest of practice, sometimes you can kind of go for things uh, that aren't necessarily always the best, because especially if you have the time, and that's one thing is important, is practice does change depending on how much available time you have. <laughs> um, if you can get a ton of games in, you have a little bit room to experiment. If you can get very few games in, the practice changes somewhat. Um, but if you can get like those games in, like try things out. Um Try to push what your list can do to its limits because you you can learn a lot about it that way and play it into but especially if you do have a lot of time like play it into good and bad matchups it's you get a lot out of it. Yep. Um, so real quickly, I'm going to touch on when I when I decide to go for scenario or attrition. Um, scenario typically I'm going to sacrifice a lot of my army to get significantly ahead on that win condition. This is a little little less reliable in SR 2017 because you have to win by five. But if I can, my, my typical rule of thumb for SR 2017 is sort of evolving to be, if I can score three points to my opponent's none, it's probably worth it. Assuming that I'm not going to just like instantly get annihilated on the backswing. Um, and then on attrition, attrition is playing like a much safer cagier game where you take a couple three dudes in exchange for your one. Uh, That's where you're that, playing the math game. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And that, that one's more like, all right, well, if I can shoot down five infantry models and then charge a heavy with my heavy and kill it, and then I've got more guys than he has left, and this will just grind down eventually in my favor. Um, if that, that's what I go for if there's literally no way to deal with um, the scenario or for assassination. Uh, that, that's when I typically go for attrition. And it's very important to note that this is a turn-by-turn plan. Uh, your overarching game plan can be for attrition, but if you see an opening for a really good assassination run, just just do it in a tournament. Like if it's a if it's a seventy year percent or higher assassination run, I will probably go for it. This is even if, this is an area of the game you and I are so different. Well, no, I I mean, I say I'll probably go for it, and then I'll talk myself out of it. Well, I mean, so even the other part though about how when you go for a scenario versus attrition, um. I tend to think of both assassination and a lot of the time scenario as 
So, okay, this is a little how I end up working. Over a very large number of die rolls, dice tend to be, tend to become more average. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to play the safest game that I can. And I know exactly what my numbers will look like over a very long series of dice rolls. <laughs> um, attrition to me is my primary win condition. I will work out the other part of it a little bit later based on what that opens up. And the reason for that is to me, I consider that the safest way to play. Um, and that's just how I enjoy playing it and what works well for me. Um, because it's, it basically, as soon as attrition becomes clearly not the correct way, if I feel like I cannot peace trade effectively, I change the plan. I have to do something different. And that's just, that, like, that's why I'm, a, I'm such a grindy player, though. That's just how I work. Yeah, that's fair. Everybody's yeah, I, you definitely do favor the attrition. I, I kind of consider myself sort of a centrist in that I'm willing to do basically any of the three things on a given turn, depending on what I think the best thing to do is. Every time I try um, to assassinate someone, I lose. <laughs> yeah, that that that's true. I, I so agree with you I on just, that one. <laughs> so I just I gave up on that whole concept. I was just like, eh. I've literally had casters on like no focus sitting in the middle of my army, and I'm like, well, well I can probably win on scenario though. And, like you're just like, eh. I don't know if assassination is the right move. It doesn't seem good. But no, that's right. All right, I have a couple of little tidbits. Um, don't forget to practice the like physical aspect. Um. <laughs> you're in order to win an event you have to win you know like four or five games in a row in a single day that's a lot of war machine in a day that's usually a lot more than you're getting in a typical day so take a take a weekend take some time and like play an exhaustion con just play as many games as possible because you have to keep your mind sharp especially in the finals even when you're freaking exhausted drink um, water drink water, drink water. um this is actually uh, this actually gives a mechanical advantage to assassinations because they go faster <laughs> one yeah. way or the other. Yeah, um, and a good way to get completely exhausted in the finals is to play five games in a row that uh, go to time. Yep. <laughs> um, yep. I'll admit, though, I I love round six games. <laughs> They're so funny. <laughs> yes, but the the cool thing about that is that is something you can practice. That is something you can get better at. Um, yeah. Yep. Is, more alert at the end of a tournament, and that will give you a huge advantage. Yes, and in addition to that, if you're really serious about winning an event, exercise, like, every day a little bit, at least. Um, go for a walk, or go jog, or do something that gets you moving and gets your body used to being pushed physically. Uh, because, like, believe it or not, standing for 10 hours while doing somewhat complicated mental exercises for a game is pretty physically punishing uh, at the end of it. So you want to build up your endurance as best you can. You gotta pick up your war casters and do curls and bench press your colossals. Get used to yeah, get, in bronze. get an extreme off and uh, bench it. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, we're kinda of wandering into tournament prep somewhat, but it's such a yep. like practice is like it's such an ambiguous statement about it. there's so many different things you could be kind of practicing for. Drink water. We're good. We're Drink good water. Yeah, I'm yeah, telling yeah. you, I, I did two six-round events in two weekends, and one of them I drank water, one of them I didn't. And having those right next to each other, holy crap, the difference. 
Like, yeah. round six, the first one, I was dead to the world. Like, could not... Me and the Balder player I was fighting against were basically at the point of just throwing dice at each other. Like, there was no... There was no anything War machine really going on. It's just, like, knocking each other's models over and stuff. Like, what's going on? Uh, drinking water, I felt like I could have gone another round. Like, I was so just ready to go. It's, it's a big deal, so... Yep. That's my little thing. I always... I Now I just bring a huge case of water to local tournaments, anyway. Yep. So, anyway, that's a little bit of us talking about practicing. It's it's a big topic. There's a lot of stuff to talk about. Um, we'll probably come back to most of these things for a full episode at some point here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the end of the day, it's just like get games in. Um, one of the big ones, and I was, it's like if your locals are willing. I've I have met uh, local groups that are not willing to do this kind of thing. But if your locals like that kind of thing, talk about your games. Um, get get together with them and you know a lot of people it's not uncommon for people to be sitting around watching your games almost every game it used to be anyway we lost a lot of people but almost every game i played in my local area like that's exactly what happened is you you play a game and then you spend like an hour with like seven people in the shop all talking about it and and we got a lot better we got a lot better yeah at the game doing that and yeah no um, i 100 percent agree with that yeah and and you know there's there is something to be said about you know, like just talking about the game all the time is not going to be an alternative to, to playing, you know. But if you have that opportunity to, to really analyze and get the most out of it, especially if you can't get a lot of games in, um, it's a good way to maximize your time a little bit. So um, I think that's more or less our topic for this week. Yep. Uh, so all the fun stuff, of course. Uh, a big thank you, of course, to our Patreon supporters who have been... Super awesome. Um, I made a post about this, but we're going to be doing the first raffle thing. I'm going to do it the first week of, of September. Um, the way we have it set up, uh, you need to back four episodes at any point in that quarter to be eligible for the raffle. That way we don't have people just jumping in, you know, in the very, very last week. Um, it's fair for everybody who's been supporting for a little while. Um, I went ahead and set it up so that all tiers are unlocked for the, the blister and the heavy and the painted model and everything. So everybody who's, everybody who's backing and, and who, who backs basically as of this week is, is eligible for that. And then we're going to be doing another one the next quarter. It'll be great. Uh, and it's been super awesome having, having all you guys helping us out with that kind of a thing. Uh, also a huge thanks to Broken Egg Games. Um, they've been supporting us. They've been super awesome. And if you go over to their store, you can use the code LOS5CODE. That gets you 5% off all the stuff on the Broken Egg store. And it's so pretty. And their stuff is great. Their Grimkin tokens are just gorgeous. Um, yes. Yeah, they don't, they don't make bad stuff, especially like, especially after they got like the Privateer Press license. A lot of stuff they've been doing is just awesome. Some of the brightest, like clearest stuff you'll get. So I would definitely check them out. Uh, our website is, of course, loswarmachine.com. Uh, you can get us on Twitter, at los underscore Chandler, at los underscore Jaden. And, of course, Brett, who never checks his Twitter, is at chokeobsessed underscore LL. So if you want to never hear from Brett, that's a good way to uh, <laughs> to try to get a hold of him. If you'd like to just, like, if you just like to say mean things about him without him ever seeing it, then that's, that's the place to go. I respond to Facebook messages. It's true. Um, speaking of Facebook, you can find us on Facebook at our page, which is just line of sight. And you can message any of us. We're usually pretty receptive to that. And if you want to shoot us an email, it is loswarmahordes at gmail.com because LOS War Machine was taken. Yep. Um, yeah. Real, real quick, uh, last week's listener challenge was to sprint whack, uh, and I got one response. So, Kenny Bush, a uh, shout-out to you. You sprint whacked with the Wanderer in a game. And although he calls it the crazy Uwasa, so he called that too. 
And uh, I actually sprint whacked with Old Witch this last weekend, and it was awesome. So, oh yeah. Huge bass cruising all over the table. Like, yes. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I think that about does us for this week, and we're going to see you guys next week for Episode 7. Absolutely. Yeah, see you all around. <laughs>